Good evening, guys. Hey, it is so good to be with you guys. Um, as John mentioned, my name is Tim. Uh, as a ton of you I don't recognise, it's so great to have you guys uh, with us here at Six O'Clock Church, a new community. And, and just to kick things off, I'm already feeling a little bit uncomfortable. This like headset thing has been basically over weeks shaped into larger heads. And and, it, and I'm just saying, like, not it's nothing spiritual. I'm just saying my head is a bit smaller. And so uh, if this comes off, you're going to have to let me know because it's just, I just don't feel my head was made for this kind of equipment. But I'm going to soldier on. I'm going to make it. And um, yeah, for those of you, I know you've heard loads about it already, but for those of you um, who were there this weekend, um, I've kind of come back feel it, feeling a little bit like those times at Christmas when you've eaten more than you thought was physically possible and, and you're totally stuffed. And, um, you, you know, we've had this uh, wonderful appetite of Chris Taylor um, all the way from The Hague. We've had this rich, um, kind of heavy main course of Steph Listen and our very own Hannah Silly, who was amazing. And then this morning, um, the dessert that is Dave Holden speaking on Covenant. And, and, and I know it's like you're like on the Christmas day and you've eaten so much and you're like, I'm a, uh, there's no way. I'm going to eat anything else. And then someone says, we have a cheese course for you. And, and, and you think, well, in a normal day, as a normal person, I, w- I would go no, nowhere near this extra course. But you think, well, it's Christmas and someone else is paying. So of course I will have the cheese course. So ladies and gentlemen, tonight I present to you the cheese course of Mark 8. Um, but what is wonderful, as Foxy so helpfully um, introduced to us today, that there is always more to God. There is always more that God has for us. And if we, even we have come back from a, a day full of God speaking to us in powerful moments, there is more. There is more in the depths of his word. There's more that the Spirit has to teach us. And so that's why I'm running high still. And we can make it through tonight. It's going to be okay. Um, so... I don't know how you guys have found it, but um, often as I open the Bible, um, I'm surrounded by men and women, other Christians, who just seem to know what to do with it immediately. Um, There are times I open the Bible and I hear other commentaries maybe, maybe a few Christian celebs, maybe if you're inclined, an Instagram with a verse or two, and you just think, wow, they are so good at unpacking and understanding and feeding themselves with this Bible. And there are times when I open the Bible, and Mark 8 is one of them, where I just think, oh my goodness, this is so complicated. And there are moments when Jesus says to his disciples, do you not understand? And my response would be, no, no, I don't understand. What on earth is going on here? And, and the difficulty is I'm typically, I'm, I'm approaching it as I approach most things I read in life, which is if I can't understand it within, let's be generous and say the first 30 seconds and pretend I don't have the attention span of a ferret. Um, let, let's be generous and say, if I don't understand it in 30 seconds, I'm just not interested. And the reality is that the, the Bible is written in such a way that we would wrestle with it. And Jesus teaches people in such a way that people would need to wrestle with his teachings. And lots of people walked away from Jesus thinking, I, I, just, I just don't get this. And I'm not really bought in. And what Jesus would have us do with his word is wrestle with it. He invites us, come and dig, come and discover. And he speaks in parables so that we would wrestle with God. Because he's not just about understanding, he's about relationship He wants us to wrestle with him, to ask, to ask, to dig, 
promising that we will find. And so that's what we come to here today with Mark. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to start plowing through it. Lord God, uh, we pray as we are faced with your scripture, both the challenge of understanding it and the wonderful joys that you promise that God, we would be a resilient people who are hungry for more of you. That we will be a people who look at you and when you say, I give life and life to the full, but come, follow me. That we would take difficult bits of scripture, that we would take things that don't immediately make sense and dig. Lord God, we trust you. We trust you and we know that when you, uh, when you come with life and joy and forgiveness and hope, Lord God, we ask, would we find this? God, as we unpack these bits of scripture, would you speak to us powerfully in your beautiful name? Amen. So um, as I'm sure you all know, but I will quickly recap, Mark is all about the different responses that people have to Jesus. And Mark has a particular style, a particular way. He knows his, um, uh, th- the disciples have witnessed Jesus over years, and it would be impossible, it says in John, it would be impossible to write everything that Jesus did. And so what Mark does is he puts things in a way that basically contrasts. This is how people respond to Jesus. And it leaves us with the option, how are we going to respond to Jesus? And, and this week, I just love this scripture because it, it contrasts beautifully all of these different responses to Jesus and gives us a question at the end. And this is how we're going to unpack it. We're coming to the end of Jesus's, um, if you like, unpacking of his authority. So there's tons of miracles and places where he casts out demons and teaches and does these amazing things and demonstrates his authority. And now we're stepping into a season in Mark where it starts challenging his authority. And people and crowds and Pharisees and mobs start challenging his authority. Uh, And we see this uh, shift in the middle of it. But I'm going to dive straight in. In verse 1 of Mark 8, it says this, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called, that's Jesus, his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And, And some of them... I've come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves you had? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, to, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces. Left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Daumanutha. And so what we see here, there's another story of it as well, is where Jesus feeds a whole bunch of people miraculously. We have this picture here of these um, crowds who are notoriously fickle. These crowds are here and excited for one moment, and the next moment, they are gone. And yet we see Jesus doesn't treat them like crowds, doesn't treat them like numbers. We deal with numbers in our world all the time. You know, I have several different places at work that I go to regularly just checking numbers. Numbers who are using a certain website, numbers who are using a certain app, and so often we reduce people to numbers. Jesus doesn't treat us like numbers. Jesus saw this great crowd and he was broken. 
who was compassion, compa- compassionate for these people, knowing how fickle they were, knowing that they weren't real followers in a sense. He had compassion for them. And, and we see that whenever Jesus does these things, he calls them signs. It's a really interesting word because it's basically a miracle. So why would you use a word like sign? A sign is indicating that there's something else behind this. There's something behind this. And these miracles are not just demonstrating that Jesus can do awesome miracles. They're demonstrating his authority, that he is God. He is king. He has authority over nature. He has authority over bread. He has authority over all kinds of things. He is Lord of all, but also that he cares. He's involved. And some of you here today, maybe you're here for the first time, and you think, why on earth should I be interested in this God? Because he cares for you. And like that word came through earlier on, he cares for you so outrageously. And this is a little picture of this. But the picture doesn't end there. Um, Jesus uses some of these pictures, these tangible things, where he does something tangible as a picture of what's going on underneath. And a really good example of this is that um, he is using uh, bread. And we see in John 6.35, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And what he's talking about here is not a, a physical hunger. Because we get hungry once, and then we get fed, and then we get hungry again. And that's life. That's what happens when you eat. But there is something about coming to Jesus that satisfies us in a way that nothing else does. And Jesus over and over again uses these pictures of, look, I am the bread of life. You, you need me. And in the same way, he comes to these desperate people who are desperate for, for food. They were literally going to faint. And, 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 and he says, there is a bigger picture going on here. I, I give you everything you possibly need. I was talking to my boss earlier this week about midlife crises because we know how to pie. And um, my boss, who has gone through his midlife crisis, um, he, 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 he basically sent me an article. And he was like, this, really great, uh, this is a really great article that summarizes why midlife crises happen. And they were um, kind of discovered, if you like, in about 1965. And um, the premise behind them is you come up to a certain stage in your life where you start becoming really aware of your own mortality, of the fact that one day you're going to die. And everything you love in this world is, is not going to exist anymore. One day, everything we love is going to come to an end. And you get to that stage in your life where you're thinking about that, where you're more aware of that, and you start to freak out. And you freak out and you panic and you do what you know, any um, sane person does, and you buy stuff. And you buy things and you buy cars and you upgrade stuff, you upgrade jobs, you upgrade hobbies, sometimes you upgrade spouses. Midlife crises are everywhere. There are, you know, particular markets that are aimed towards this subsect of life because people get so desperate. But the reality is, whether you're in your midlife or not, welcome, um, the reality is we are faced with... (laughs) You don't have to laugh, James. This is, um, the, the reality or not is that we, uh, everything in this world, as good as it is, it's not enough. It's not enough. And we're reminded when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you life. That we have in Jesus a satisfaction unlike anything else. 
We're going to continue. In verse 11, it says this, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. That's Jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. And we have this this really interesting picture where Jesus doesn't perform the miracle for the Pharisees. And you could look at this critically and think, well, I thought Jesus liked, I thought he loved everyone. I thought he was gracious to everyone. So why the Pharisees come along and he's like, mm, not for you. Like, is there, are there dividers? Is there a certain kind of person you need to be to receive the love of God? Like, what's going on here? Um, and the reality is we kind of need to unpick this a little bit. Because what it says is that the, the Pharisees meant to test Jesus. And what that meant was disprove. Because the reality is what the Pharisees were here to do was undermine and pull the foundations out of Jesus because what he was doing was essentially undermining their entire way of life. The Pharisees um, were a sect that had um, built themselves on the roots of, of Christianity, on the roots of Judaism. But what they'd also done is added a whole load of additional laws to this. They'd added a whole long, uh, load of additional things you also had to do. And also little places where you, you didn't really have to follow that law because actually if you read it in a certain funky way and kind of uh, like, like shoehorn in some other different rules we've added, you actually don't have to do that. And they'd built all of their stature, all of their wealth, and all of their um, praise from other people upon um, this specific way of distorting God's law. And so Jesus comes along, the revealed son of God, saying he was the Messiah. And these guys felt really threatened. And this, in this bit of Mark, this is just the beginning, it's, it's going to get much worse. But what we see here is Jesus sees right through this. And what he's essentially saying to them is, you guys... You have built everything up on your own works. Unlike these desperate people who needed food, you are so self-reliant on your own works, missing the whole fact that you are, as Jesus calls them, whitewashed tombs, dead on the inside. And yet what you present is that you're well on the outside. And so uh, a little bit elsewhere in the Gospels, in Matthew, Jesus says, um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And what he's talking about in that moment is Pharisees. And he's being a little bit sarcastic here. Well, since you guys are so well, since you clearly have everything so sorted out, since your life is just, mm, it's just so perfect, you are clearly the aroma of Christ on your own. You have no need for God. You have no need for my miracles. You have no need for the work of God in your life since you guys clearly have it all sorted out so well. What he's revealing here is the hypocrisy of these Pharisees. What this teaches us is that God requires us to know how we really are. I'm going to unpack this a little more. But what he points out here is, you you guys are missing the big picture here. I'm not going to perform any miracles to you. And we're going to move on. He says this in verse 14. Uh, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. This is the disciples. And they're in the boat at this stage. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. I do love this moment. There were 12 of them, right? With very, very limited jobs at this stage. And between the 12 of them, it's, you can tell it's a boat full of 12 guys. They're like, oh no, we've only got one, one, one loaf of bread and we're in like the middle of this massive lake. 
And we just, we've totally, I just love, there's some wonderful humor in this. And one of the reasons I believe in the Bible is it doesn't stop in showing how much the disciples were total morons. They totally miss stuff all the time. I find this hilarious. Anyway, sorry, back to this. Um, and they only had one loaf with them. Oh, no. And he cautioned them, saying, and there's a change of subject here, watch out, beware um, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, and so just to explain that a little bit, um, the, the leaven is, is basically yeast. It's a rising agent. And so think about bread for a moment. For some of you, this may be not that familiar. But bread, it, when you pop it in the oven, it raises. It puffs up, if you like. And the Bible uses um, leaven as a picture of evil. It uses a p- picture of arrogance. If you think about it, there's something quite visual about it. it it's, uh, evil is like a puffing up. It's an arrogance. It's a self-righteousness. And so he says, beware of the, the leaving of the Pharisees, the leaving of the Herods. And they began discussing with themselves the fact they had no bread. They were missing all of the point of this here. They were like, is, is he just making this really awkward for us because we've forgotten all the bread? Like, what on earth is going on right now? And Jesus, aware of this, oh my gosh, you guys, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? And he's quoting Jeremiah here, which is God speaking to his hard-hearted, rebellious people. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. They said to them, do you not yet understand? And what he's doing here and what Mark is setting up for us is painting these two pictures. And what he's in this moment done is compared the feeding of these thousands with the the leaven of these Pharisees. And what he's saying is you can choose to do two different things here. You can choose to be a desperate people who depend upon me and trust me for everything. Or you, like the Pharisees, can trust on your own works which will fail. Uh, And he's calling them out here and using these uh, wonderful bread illustrations to say, who are you going to be? Who are you going to be? And the the, uh, disciples, sharp as they are, like completely miss it. But it's fine. God is gracious and he continues um, going on. So we're going to continue to the next bit. So um, number four, blind people and a God of revelation. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. It's worth mentioning with little moments like this where Jesus is hiding what he's doing. He's leading him out of the village so that crowds don't see it. Because what's going on right now is um, the world doesn't, hasn't quite understood who he is and what he's coming for. And so he's saying, don't, don't reveal this yet. Don't quite tell anyone yet. It's coming. I'm going to reveal this, but bit by bit so people really understand who I am. Because I don't want them to get the wrong impression. Because the message I have to bring is really important. And so that's why he does it bit by bit. Often quite private moments. He's not there on a stage, backing vocalist, Wembley. He's doing things bit by bit, right? I'm revealing my plan for the coming kingdom bit by bit. That's what he's doing here. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Right? So he's healing here. And you do have to pick up how odd this is for just a moment bearing in mind this is the same Jesus who can just heal you know just by walking past someone or doesn't have to be near them he can just say behold they're healed like this is a God of an immense power and yet for some reason for this particular healing what does he do he spits in his eye you know we call someone who spits in people's eyes a crazy person that's what we call them 
And yet this is Jesus being in this guy's eye. What on earth is going on here? Well, like with everything else Jesus has done, it is rich with imagery. It's rich with imagery of what he's like. And what he's making here is he's not a vending machine of healings. This is an intimate moment where God heals this person. This is, again, filled with compassion. This is someone coming to someone who is um, considered quite unclean. Someone who is considered, uh, you know, an outcast. People with ailments of certain kinds were considered outcasts from society. And drawing near, there is intimacy, there is closeness. He's putting his hands on him here. I, th- I thought that was worth mentioning. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. Remember, like, these guys are not going to understand it yet. Don't even tell people about it yet. And I think this is, really, this is really, really interesting because straight after the disciples, he has called them out for not having eyes to see. We have a whole story full of references to sights. This man is blind. He can't see. And what does God do? He, he bit by bit heals him so that he can see. And, and this is a direct indication. It's a picture of what's going on with the disciples. You guys don't get it because you can't see. There is a spiritual blindness amongst you. This is a a picture he's telling the disciples over and over again. You see what's going on here. You can't see. And this is something you can't change in yourselves. But I can. But I can. Look, look, Look at me physically healing someone. If I can physically heal this person, what can I do with your soul? I can give you eyes to see. I can soften your hearts. And this is a wonderful picture of what it, what it means to see Jesus. Once I was blind, but now I see, is how the hymn goes. And we have this wonderful picture of what God does in our life. And about a decade ago, the same thing happened to me. And um, it's always as something a decade ago is. It's a little blurry. I can't remember all of it. But I remember it was over a period of time. And it's interesting how Jesus heals him in two parts. And it's interesting because there's plenty of miracles where he just does it straight away. He just does something amazing, like no sweat. He doesn't have, it's not like, it's not like he's tired. It's not like he's, well, oh, God, sorry, you know, let me try again. But he really labors the several parts of this. And I think it's interesting that there are, um, sometimes meeting Jesus doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes it does. Sometimes you see this. Literally yesterday I was totally away from God and now I see the fullness of God. But in the reality is, well, there's a little bit of a journey. Do, do you see Jesus yet? I, I see something of Jesus. Okay, let's pray some more. Do, do you see Jesus? I, I've just had something revealed. This is, I'm getting there. I'm getting it there. And if you've been on an Alpha course and you've seen people walking through this journey of what it is to know God, you see bit by bit, I'm seeing more of God. But the reality is, I think there are, of all of us today, I think there are many of us um, who... You'll say, I, I see something of God. I know something of God. And the reality is, remember, every time this happens, Jesus turns this back to us and he says, but what about you? Sure, for this person. Sure, for this disciple. But what about you? Do you see today? Do you um, see with spiritual eyes who God is, all the love he has for you? Do you see his forgiveness? Do you see him reaching out to you and giving you new life? And I think sometimes we settle for less. Sometimes we, we, we are settled to, um, to be, if you like, blind or at least half blind. And if you like, we're fumbling around in this world. 
And we're fumbling around spiritually and we can see, like physically, but there's something about spiritually not being able to see. And, and we're quite happy to, you know, fumble around spiritually. To, to be like, well, I, I, fine, I'll figure it out. You know, it's okay. It's all right. I'll just, you know, one step at a time. I'm just, I'm figuring this out. I'm figuring this out. And the reality is, it, like we're missing something wonderful. God says it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to spend your life fumbling around the place spiritually. God wants you to see today. He is offering you wonderful hope in Jesus in that your eyes can be opened to the good he has for us. We don't have to just look around at us at the people who we see, who see spiritually. We can for ourselves see and know God. And that's why Jesus over and over again gives these stories of how this is available to all of us. So Jesus makes blind people see. C.S. Lewis has this quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else. Um, C.S. Lewis is saying, not only, like, I'm a Christian because I, I see it's there, it's tangible, it's real, there's evidence for it, there's history for it, there's logic for it, I see the evidence for it, but also, now that I've met Jesus, I see everything differently. Friends, when you know God, you see the world differently. You see the world as a different place. You see hope where before you saw despair. Um, I remember someone telling me, um, there's that uh, TV show called, um, is it Secret Millionaire or something like that? And one of my friends as a Christian said, and just over and over again, you just hear little snippets and you discovered that some of the people working in the hardest, most forgotten, most broken places were Christians. And on this show, this millionaire would go through some of these really broken places and time and time again, You'd, you'd see, oh, there's a Christian in another broken. There's a Christian in another broken place where normal people have have given up hope. And, and yes, there are people who are not Christians who are still loving the lost and and are still um, kind, compassionate people. But there is something about seeing with the eyes that God gives us that gives us hope for the hopeless. That means we can see dark areas and go, oh no, God can do an amazing thing here. And friends, we have this opportunity today for our eyes to be opened to the, the, the goodness of God in our lives. Number five, God calls, we repent and believe. Verse 27 begins like this, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets, it's worth mentioning at this stage that um, they're just referencing all of these people who were heroes of God, who did great things, but they weren't the Messiah. They were people who heard from God and saw miracles done and saw some really great stuff, but weren't the Messiah. It's probably a reflection of that people kind of really weren't sure what to expect, but also those who had read their Old Testament and knew we're supposed to be expecting a, a Messiah kind of didn't expect Jesus. And generally speaking, the response that people had to Jesus was a variety of surprise. You are shorter than I was expecting you to be. You are more average. Uh, the book of Isaiah tells us that Jesus wasn't actually that nice to look at. He was pretty average looking. And you're like, well, I kind of thought, you know, if you made all of the world and everything in it and you were going to send a Messiah down to earth to save all of your people, at least he'd be good looking. Surely he'd have, you know, more of a jawline that said Messiah. But no, he was a bit average looking and he was homeless. And we were kind of expecting like a really rich king to come along. Behold, here is all my wealth. Or maybe we were expecting maybe a bit more of like a David and a bit of a warrior and someone who came in with like a fight going on. And no, we, we get Jesus 
It's pretty lowly. It's pretty average. Um, and, and this is not what I was expecting with a Messiah at all. And that's why people were saying, um, maybe he's a prophet or something. I don't know. It doesn't really seem like a Messiah, though. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And these disciples, who remember a moment ago, who got it wrong. A moment ago, who completely missed the point. And then a story later, what do we hear? We hear a story about God opening the eyes of blind people. And then the disciples say this, you are the Christ. You are the saviour. We see them managing to um, see the beginnings of who Jesus is. They start to see as God opens their eyes, they're like, you're the Christ. And this is the first time that we, we see the disciples are beginning to get what this is. The, the disciples are beginning to get who Jesus is. And again, the point that Mark's making is God opens our eyes to see Jesus as the Messiah we really need. When we confess this, it does three things. There are three parts to a confession. And um, I was, uh, when I was last at New Day, it was a few day, um, years back now, New Day is a big youth festival we have um, where a lot of our young people are having an amazing time full of worship and preaching and a lot of them meet with God. And they have um, many occasions throughout this week where they make calls um, to, uh, to give your life to Jesus. And what happens is uh, typically a whole bunch of them run forwards and it's a really exciting moment as loads of young people are giving their lives to Jesus. Um, but after that, there's a, there's a really important, if you like, conversation that goes on. And I had the real um, absolute joy of getting to be one of the people on this massive team who basically was spending a bit of time with these kids who, who had literally just said, I want to give my life to Jesus. And we'd sit down with them and be like, let's just talk about what you have chosen to do. Let's talk through what this means. Let's talk through what it means um, to accept Jesus, to, to, if you like, confess Jesus as the Christ. Um, and to make it simple, we had A, B, C, right? Because life's complicated enough. And A was accept. A was a question. Accepting was a question fundamentally about yourself. Accepting that I have sinned. Accepting that my thoughts, that my actions, that my desires have separated me from God. God demanded from, uh, from all people, as it says in Romans, um, God demands from us a standard of perfection. And all of us, in one way or another, have fallen. It's accepting that I need help. I cannot do this on my own. Unlike the Pharisees, I need help. That's A, accept. B, believe. Believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. Believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sin in my place so that I could have his glorious life. Uh, and those two steps then lead to the third, C, which is confess. If you believe those two things are true, you can confess that Jesus is Lord. And so what we see is that something has happened in Peter, who represents the disciples here, in their lives, that they um, accept, believe, and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a really, really powerful moment. And it continues in verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And this is the first time that Jesus really started to reveal his death and resurrection here. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Right, so he's not using parables or pictures here. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. It's Peter who's, who's just understood who Jesus is and, and, and the, the great things he's doing. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you crazy person, what are you saying? But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Oh, what on earth is going on here? What is happening is Peter has said, you are the Christ, I confess you as Lord. But he's actually missed the point of this. He's missed the point of this because his um, Messiah, his gospel is one without a crucified Christ. He says one thing, but his actions say another thing about what he believes about Jesus. The reality is, he's like, oh, Jesus, do you really have to die on a cross? That seems a bit outrageous. Can't you just, you know, like, lead a really great rebellion? The Romans, they suck. That's tough. It'd be great if we had our own country back again. We have tax. That's really awful. Um, I mean, could you not just come in power, do some great stuff? Do you really have to die on a cross? That seems crazy. In fact, you need to stop doing this right now. And what Jesus says is, you, you haven't really got this, have you? You've just confessed me as Christ, but you've missed the point of this. And this is a wonderful picture of what happens in our lives. We confess Jesus as Lord, maybe on a Sunday. Maybe we meet Jesus in a really powerful way. Maybe we went to a conference, had a really good time with Jesus and confessed Jesus is Lord. And then real life kicks in. And the reality of the walk that God has called us to walk kicks in. And we say, Jesus, you really called me to do that? Or I've got to depend on you for like everything? Or you've called me to give of like my money? Or you've called me to not have certain kinds of relationships and have relationships and friendships with the kind of person that I don't really like? Or you've called me to be part of a church, which is actually quite awkward sometimes. It's quite inconvenient being part of a church. Um, some people at church are really irritating. I, I, don't, I don't really want to be, but really you've called me to this? And the confession we made gets tested. And what Jesus is saying is to us is this confession is real. But what are you going to do about this? Are your actions going to reflect the confession of faith that you made? What's that going to look like? And for Peter in this moment, Peter's a little unique because it's before Jesus has gone to the cross. It means Jesus has to die this horrible death for our horrible sin. And Jesus can't, um, Peter, sorry, can't quite stomach this. He can't quite understand what God has called him to. And there are things in this world that God has called us to that are hard. They are hard to understand. They are hard to bear. They are hard to see the big picture in it. But God says, trust me. And Peter, in that moment of rebuking him, I love Peter. He, he is like, he is like a moron, but with everything on the outside. At least the other disciples, they're like, well, I'll just like keep it on the inside, you know? I'll just maybe not say that out loud. And Peter's like, no, behold, all of my idiocy is here for everyone to see. And it's wonderful because it, it really paints a picture of what's actually going on, on the inside for us, yeah? And then there are always moments where we're like, Jesus, please, I've got this. Or Jesus, please, I'm not doing that. And the reality is God says, no, come and follow me. Come and follow me. I died for you and I call for you to, to die to your old life and be made alive in me. Come and follow me. It's a love that demands all of you. A love that demands all of you. And, we, and I, I love this picture of this. It is um, so encouraging. Because in a sense, we could have left it at the Peter um, making the great corner. Yay, it's a nice picture. It's a nice story with a little bow on the end. And it's just beautiful, polished uh, and wonderful. But the, the Bible just doesn't really say that at all. The Bible says about a Christian life in that it is messy. 
And this is, um, crazily enough, not the first mistake that Peter makes. Peter makes quite a few mistakes. You've got the bit where he completely betrays him just before his death, and then you've got the bit where he denies him to a teenage girl, um, and is like, I have seriously no idea who this Jesus guy is. And then you have the bit where he's a racist a little bit later in Acts, and, and is a picture of the way God comes to us over and over again. Gently, lovingly, but firmly. I love you. I love you. Stop saying one thing and doing another. Confess me as Christ and follow me as your saviour. And God is calling us that to freshly today. I don't know if there are bits in our life that don't match up to the confession that we've made. Maybe you've never made this confession at all and you're thinking, is this worth it? Is this Jesus guy worth it? What Mark does is he paints us a picture and he, he gives us an overview. Here's what people say about Jesus. What will you say about Jesus? What will your response to Jesus be? Will you accept this offer of life? Will you accept the sobering words that Jesus gives us? There's a wonderful truth about friends in that the real friends will tell us, tell us things like it is. And we can have some friends who just really love to just be encouraging but when it comes down to it, they're not really going to say the real stuff that's going on. And they're great, but not really helpful. Because the reality is, um, there are things that we miss in life. There are things that we don't quite understand and don't quite see. It's why we have friends who are honest with us and love us. And Jesus, the ultimate friend, is willing to look us straight in the eyes and say, there is a brokenness in your life that I can fix. There is a hope that you do not yet have. There is a blindness in your life that I can give you sight for. There is a hunger in your life that all the things you throw at it aren't going to satisfy. I alone can satisfy. And he says these, um, if you like hard words, and there's a phrase I love, but does come with a caveat. Hard words form soft hearts. And soft words form hard hearts. Now, let's say straight off the, uh, the offset that um, this can be abused quite a lot. Yeah? You can say, hey, I'm being horrible here because I love you. Because I want you to turn out well. The reality is, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus, in love, is using these hard words. He, time and time again, we see he rebukes, he corrects, he, he says to the disciples, oh my gosh, you guys are missing the point again. Not because he hates them, but because he loves them. I love you. I love you. And through my grace and through my patience and through my kindness and through my authority over the spiritual blindness in your life, I will open your eyes. And we have to say, what are we, what are we doing with our lives? Are we taking Jesus' offer, his opportunity to us seriously? That he is leading us, loving us, and calling us to himself. And we have to let two things speak truth to us. We have to let the Bible speak truth to us. Do we open it? That's a really good start. If you open the Bible, it will speak to you. If you don't, it probably won't. Right? There's some, some really basic stuff there. And, and I found when, when I started to be able to know how to open the Bible, God started speaking to me powerfully over and over again. And then more than that, the more I read it, the more these, these verses started to go into my head in a way that I could remember it. And there were moments where God would speak to me through Scripture, even though the Bible was nowhere in sight, but the Scripture was ingrained in me and it spoke to me. We have to let these difficult words of Jesus wash over us. That's the first way. The second way is in community. 
And um, if maybe our culture wasn't so adverse to community, I probably wouldn't need to say this, but that's not the case. London is, as John said before, one of the loneliest cities in the world. You can come here and be surrounded by people and yet know no one. And I meet Christian after Christian who really struggles with this. And we need to fight for the kind of friendships where we can be honest about our life and we give people the freedom to speak into our lives. What is so encouraging when I'm meeting with a brother in Christ and they implicitly or explicitly basically say, you can, you can say the truth to me. You can just be honest with me. That is such a wonderful freedom. And sometimes we come into these friendships with people, but we say, but yeah, but like, don't say really hard stuff. Just say nice stuff, because I'm just going to stop answering your calls if you stop saying nice things to me. Because the reality is, I think my life's fine. And actually, I think I'm doing okay. And just like the Pharisees, you know, I've actually got some great works going on. And it's a great reputation. I think I'm doing all right. Jesus loves me. I'm going to be fine. The reality is God says, no, 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 these hard words are to do good in our life. God wants for us to have soft hearts that will be formable by God as he forms us and makes us into the image of his son. So what will our response be? I think there is an immediate one uh, with beer and carols. John, can I work on them? Um, Using one of these invites, if you like, is, um, could be a bit of a suicide note of uh, popularity. It, it could be a moment where you actually have to be honest about the Jesus in your life who's changed everything. It could be a bit of a moment where you have to say, yeah, I'm really sorry, I, I actually do love Jesus. I know this whole time I've kind of tried to cover it up or just use stuff that kind of painted stuff in broad strokes. So you didn't really get the picture that, you know, I love Jesus and he's the centre of my world and you're now going to think loads of things about me that I can't control. But yeah. Yes, I do love Jesus. Our confession is not just a private one. Our confession is a public one. So I have a, I have a friend of mine um, who uh, is part of my team at work, and she lives in Welling. And I've got to figure out, okay, am I going to be honest? I really love Jesus. And when she asks, so how was your weekend? I could say, yeah, yeah, it's great. Went to uh, East Grinstead. That was pretty average. Um, had some other good things that went on. And miss all of the fact that Jesus met with me in powerful and significant ways. My confession cannot stay to myself. This wonderful good news about a Jesus who gives hope and joy and opens the eyes of the blind and gives food to the hungry. It cannot stay to ourselves, friends. It's why we put on amazing things like this. Because we believe Jesus is worth sharing. What are we going to do? What is our response going to be? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to finish. Um, Lord God, we thank you so much that your good news is really good news. We thank you, God, that for the countless times when we have got the wrong end of the stick, you don't just give up on us. You didn't give up on the disciples, and you do not give up on us. And God, I thank you that over time, you open our eyes. You reveal yourself afresh to us. You feed us day after day. God, I thank you that there is hope and joy in you that we can all say with full assurance, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that more than that, Jesus, you equip us with the Holy Spirit. You give us boldness that none of us had before. You give us courage that none of us had before. You give us um, the words to say that Jesus Christ is Lord in every corner of, of this world you've put us in, Lord God. So Jesus, I pray as we go from this place, as we go to our families full of people who don't know you, as we go to our workplaces full of people who don't know you, our schools and colleges, Lord God, would we be a people who confess Jesus is Lord and we're not ashamed of that. In Jesus' name, amen.